0: Tune into radical philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, <laughs> knowledge, evil, and rational argument, with words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. <laughs>
1: My name is Bronwyn Winter and you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR, which is 8.55 on your AM dial.
0: Good afternoon, listeners. Thanks very much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And I'm speaking to Associate Professor Serena Perrick about Hannah Arendt. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. Can you give us a little bit of background information about yourself?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. I'm, as you mentioned, an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Northeastern University in Boston, and I direct the PPE program, the Program on Politics, Philosophy, and Economics. And so I teach courses in political philosophy, economic justice, feminist theory, global justice, did my PhD at Boston College, where I wrote my dissertation on Hannah Arendt, and studied other continental philosophers, so philosophers working more in the European tradition of philosophy rather than the Anglo-American philosophy. And before that, I studied in Belgium and McGill University in Montreal. Do
0: you have any publications?
1: I do. I have two books that are currently out and one in progress. My first book was on Hannah Arendt, and it was called Hannah Arendt and the Challenge of Modernity, a Phenomenology of Human Rights. My second book was called Refugees and the Ethics of Forced Displacement. That came out last year, and I'm currently working on a more uh, general audience book, so those are both more scholarly books, on ethics and the refugee crisis. And as well, I have a lot of articles, book chapters, things like that. So
0: what was it that inspired you to study Hannah Arendt?
1: You know, it was more, I stumbled across her, and she sparked something in me that I had never kind of come across before, so I was doing my master's degree at the University of Leuven in Belgium, and unlike a lot of master's programs in philosophy, it was a taught degree, so I took a bunch of different courses, and it was very broad, and and someone, I had to write a thesis, and someone said, you know, like, you should read her around, like, you would like her, and I thought, like, well, okay, I've never heard of her before, but I read her biography by Elizabeth Young-Bruhl, and she just had such a fascinating life. And a lot of her ideas emerged from this very profound experience she had being a German-Jewish woman living in the 20th century. And it really did, it just, it it just, I just found her fascinating in these ways I had never found anything fascinating before. So I wrote my master's thesis on her, and then I applied for a Ph.D. program And initially, I thought I would do something else, but I just kept coming back to her. Um, There's just something I wanted to understand more and read, something that just really drove me to try to understand her more deeply.
0: So could you tell us about Hannah Arendt's background, like childhood, etc.?
1: Absolutely. I mean, this is one of the things that's most fascinating about her. She was born in 1906 in Germany, and as I mentioned, she's Jewish, but she grew up in an assimilated family, and just never thought of being Jewish as being something important to her and her family, until she kind of came across anti-Semitism, which she experienced throughout her life, as early as when she was a child. And she has this story of experiencing anti-Semitism at school, and her mother told her, if it's children who tease you for being Jewish, you deal with them. If it's your teachers, then you leave your classroom, and I will deal with them. And that lesson always stuck with her, that you have to sort of stick up for yourself, unless it's somebody you can't, and then you get, you know, you go to the authorities to do that. So she grew up, um, as I said, an assimilated Jew. She goes to the you know this incredible German school system, and she starts at university when she's fairly young. She's about 18. She studies with people who eventually become you know, the most famous German philosophers in the 20s, a century. She studied with Martin Heidegger, which I can tell you more about their very fascinating relationship. She studied with Carl Jaspers. She studied also with Edmund Husserl, who's sort of considered the father of the School of Philosophy called Phenomenology, which, she's not strictly a phenomenologist, a lot of the methodologies and ways of thinking certainly influenced her work. So she has this incredible education. She writes uh, with uh, Carly Asper, who is also you know, a very well-known philosopher, on St. Augustine, on the concept of love in St. Augustine, which you would not think would be the dissertation of a uh, you know, well-known political theorist, or who has become a well-known political theorist. But somehow she managed to find the idea of love in Catholic philosopher-theologian as being the sort of central political idea. So she writes a dissertation, and everything's going well. Then, of course, she kind of comes of age in Germany in the 1930s and very quickly realizes she has to leave. She goes to Germany. And, I'm sorry, she leaves Germany and goes to France initially, lives in Paris, befriends Walter Benjamin, another well-known thinker in the 20th century. She then is interned in France in, in and in Gurs in an internment camp, She eventually says, you know, our enemies put us in concentration camps and our friends put us in internment camps in the 20th century. And she has this very funny, not, not funny story, but a story of actually escaping from this internment camp and finding, meeting up eventually with her husband and her mother, going to Spain, getting, you know, an exit visa, and then taking the boat to come to the United States. Where she lives, she's eventually, you know, she's denaturalized in Germany in, I think, thirty-seven. She doesn't get citizenship for close to 20 years later in the United States. You know, but she, of course, was sponsored, and she got the season. She was able to come to the U.S., and her, her journey, her escape journey, is relatively untraumatic, certainly compared to what people go through in the 21st century to escape conflict zones. And then she comes to the United States and has this incredible career at the New School for Social Research in New York, the University of Chicago. She, of course, lectures all over the world. She returns to Germany uh, and then just spends you know, the rest of her life writing books, lecturing, thinking about the experience that she went through and that her contemporaries went through in Europe in the first half of and middle of the 20th century. So, yeah, it's a really interesting life.
0: What was the theme of human rights in Hannah Arendt's work?
1: So this is really what sparked my interest in graduate school. So this comes from the origins of totalitarianism, which is, I think the first major book she wrote, so she writes this in 1951, right after the Second World War. And it's one of the first sort of full-length studies of how totalitarianism came to take over Europe and came to be supported popularly and to sort of reach into all parts of life of Europe. And, it's you know, it's it's a giant book. It's very erudite. It has a number of different topics that it touches on. But one of the observations she made was that human rights didn't seem to exist in the absence of a state to protect your human rights. So, you know, human rights, of course, is an ancient concept. It it has its modern incarnation in maybe the 17th and 18th centuries, the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, for example, in France. And here you have this idea that the human being, just in itself, independent of God, independent of the state, independent of anything, has a kind of dignity that entitles it to rights. So this is the idea of human rights. But of course, it immediately becomes the rights of citizens. So this is part of you know what, what emerges in the French Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen. And so in the 20th century, she says you have for the first time groups of refugees and minorities who. Are expelled from their homelands because for you know a whole host of reasons: the, the war, the breakup of nation states, and national empires, and for the first time, you have groups that she says could could be assimilated nowhere and were welcome to nowhere. So there are refugees coming from different countries that nobody wanted, and she noticed that well, people thought, okay, well you have your human rights to rely on. You can fall back on your inalienable, God-given human rights. But it turns out that quite the opposite was the case. So she says, a human being who is nothing but a human being, it turns out is the most vulnerable person in the world. So without citizenship rights, without a state that you can claim your rights against, as we would say, it turns out that human rights are utterly meaningless. And she said, look, this is not an accident. This is, in fact, what human beings always were. And dictators, for example, recognize this. So she, one of the small things she mentions in, in Origins of Totalitarianism*, is that Hitler actually went to great lengths to denaturalize people before deporting them to the ghettos. And you think, that's, that's really interesting. So why would you have this murderous dictator who's going to do anything he wants to have this group of people killed, but yet before he does it, he goes to some length to make sure they don't have citizenship. And she says it's because he recognized the importance of the link between citizenship and human rights. And in order to, to fully, to make sure people's human rights could be violated, you had to break that link decisively. So he made sure, she says, it's as if he was checking to see if anyone cared before he started the gas chambers. And when he found that nobody did, everybody was happy to have minorities, Jewish minorities, denaturalized, it kind of gave the green light to go ahead and, and put them in ghettos initially, then, of course, concentration camps eventually. So for her, this is the paradox of human rights. So human rights are supposed to be the right that you fall back on when you have no other rights to protect you. And it turns out, without citizenship, without a meaningful place in the world, human rights turn out to be utterly effective. For her, ultimately, there's only civil rights. Human rights in themselves don't exist, because in order to have human rights, you have to have citizenship rights. Or more broadly, she says you have to have a meaningful place in a community where your actions can be effective and your opinions are taken seriously. So this is why she says, actually, you know what, we've gotten it all wrong. It's not human rights we should care about. What we should care about is what she calls the right to have rights which is the right to belong to a community in the first place. So the right to belong to a political community that's willing and able to protect your human rights, not just as a matter of law, but as a matter of action. So you belong to this community in which people are able to effectively make themselves heard and understood and seen and taken seriously, and that, she thinks, is the only foundation for human rights. It's not God, it's not rationality, it's not human agency, but it's this belonging in a, com- in a political community that makes human beings effective agents. That is the foundation for human rights.
0: Could you tell us about some of the tensions and paradoxes within the modern concept of human rights, which Arendt brings to light?
1: Yeah, great. I mean, so this, again, is a concept that I, or a phenomenon, I guess, that I found really fascinating. So in the 21st century, human rights are the rights you have against your particular state. You have the rights to claim you know, the, your human rights, and they're usually put into more domestic national rights. You claim your rights against your state. Human rights are supposed to come in as a second step. So some philosophers will say, like, the first level, human rights are claimed against the state. And then in a second order, if your state cannot or will not protect your human rights, then that's when the international community is supposed to step in to protect your human rights. And that sounds great. Okay, great. This is how human rights work. But of course, as philosophers would say, it's an undistributed duty. So if you have an Eritrean who is fleeing this brutal dictatorship, because uh, he or she doesn't want to spend his life working for the government or working in their torture chambers or something like that. Well, who is supposed to protect the human rights of the Eritrean? It's unclear. It's even unclear in the worst cases. So when you have genocide, when you have ethnic cleansing, when you have crimes against humanity, even then it's not clear who in the international community or which countries or which branches of the UN are supposed to then step in and protect your human rights. So the tension then is that human rights are supposed to be these things that are really meaningful, that are really useful, that protect human beings' dignity. But, of course, the paradox is that they only do that when you're already a member of a state. And your state is also willing and able to protect you. And for our Iran, she said, look, there are millions of people who are considered superfluous. They're considered outside of the state. They aren't necessary for the maintenance of the state, and nobody cares about them. And for these people, human rights don't matter at all. Um, And as I mentioned, what we ought to be doing is trying to include them within political communities so they at least matter to both politicians and and to other people as well. So I think for her, that's the real tension. So what are human rights? Well, there's the right to have based on our humanity in order to protect our fundamental human dignity, but they're not really human rights because we can only claim them when we have a state, an effective state that we can claim them against. And that's the part I think that remains really relevant about her work. So I mentioned the work I do right, I'm doing right now looks at the way refugees have been treated around the world. So if you are a refugee, you are somebody who believes they cannot or, un- or or will not have their state protect them. They cross the border, they seek international protection, and rather than, I mean, so the, this is what happened after the Second World War, of course, and the UNHCR, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, is kind of created to step in and serve as a surrogate state. But of course it's not a state, and it doesn't have any power, and it only can work insofar as other states agree to do to help the UNHCR and to help refugees. So you have a situation in the world today where, you know, you have 65 million displaced people, 22 million of whom are considered refugees, and less than 2% of them actually have access to minimum conditions of human dignity which is to say they actually are either resettled, receive asylum, or are able to be voluntarily returned to their home country or integrated into the country they're living with. Everyone else continues to live in what Iran might have called a state of exception, so under the laws of exception, under refugee laws, in refugee camps, informally, in urban centers, um, and, of course, making these incredibly dangerous migration journeys to try to get to the West, and fight against these really brutal policies of deterrence that every Western country has put in place to stop them. So when you look at the states, you think, well, what are their human rights? Who Who is supposed to be protecting their human rights? When their state has denied them their human rights, all other countries are desperately trying to keep them away so they don't have to take responsibility for them. And I can't help but think that Arendt was completely right, that without... Being a part
0: of a community, the the human rights of refugees are effectively meaningless. You're listening to Radio 3CR, 8.55 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Associate Professor Serena Perrick about Hannah Arendt. Arendt's first major book was The Origins of Totalitarianism. Could you tell us a little bit about this publication?
1: Sure, so this was probably her first major publication after the Second World War, one of the first in-depth studies of the sources of totalitarianism, and it's sort of surprising in a lot of ways. Let me give you two specific examples. What, what led to the rise of totalitarianism? Most people would want to look back at Europe in the 28th century and look back at existing political forces. And she does that, but she actually sort of takes a step aside and says, what we need to do is to look at the ways in which imperialism in the 18th and 19th century got us used to thinking of human beings as expendable and superfluous. So European states sort of exercise totalitarianism abroad, initially via imperialism and colonialism, and then bring that back into the heart of Europe. So the discussion of the origins of totalitarianism starts with anti-Semitism in Europe and the way in which that becomes naturalized, it becomes a way of thinking, it becomes a way of treating people, and then couple that with the way that imperialism changed how we thought about human beings and how we thought what was possible to have in society. And so these are two of the conditions that actually lead to totalitarianism. So that was one sort of strain of thought that was very surprising to people that no one had really thought about before. And the other claim was that people had thought of totalitarianism, specifically Stalinism and Nazism, as merely a kind of authoritarianism, nothing new, just a worse form of a dictatorship, an authoritarian regime that we've had in the past. So since Plato, you know, if if you've taken a first-year philosophy course, you might have read Plato's Republic, and he says, look, there are five different kinds of states. There are five different ways of ruling. You can be ruled by oligarchs, by the wealthy, you can be ruled by democracy, you can be ruled by a tyrant, which is a kind of authoritarian, and you can be ruled, of course, by the philosopher king, which should be the best. But that's kind of kind of exhausted our understanding of different forms of government. And Arendt said, "Look, if we think of Nazism and Stalinism as just another form of tyranny, we miss what's actually essential about totalitarianism, which is that it's a form of control based on terror. And the point isn't merely." the accumulation of power, as it might be for a charity, but it's the total control over every aspect of human life. And this, she said, was unprecedented. It was a totally novel form of government, which is why we didn't understand it when it happened, and which is why we need new concepts and new ways of thinking about it. And so she was always challenging people to break out of their ideological framework, and our determination to see things in the way we wanted to see them. And so it took a long time, and I think, you yeah, know, and there's certainly still some scholarly controversy over this, but in her view, thinking of totalitarianism as this radically new phenomenon shed light on it in a way it hadn't before. And the other interesting thing about the book is, of course, after the election of Donald Trump in the U.S., it became a bestseller again. So in 2017, for the first time, you know time in thirty years all of a sudden it shot up to the number one bestseller list on amazon and I was looking at it to, uh, to kind of get ready for this interview and There are so many statements in it that you think could have been written since two thousand and fifteen for two reasons: one having to do with the refugee crisis, so she describes this experience of having re- having this influx of refugees in Europe who could neither be assimilated, were not welcomed, but yet couldn't be sent back. And, and Europeans just didn't know what to do with this. And you think, wait, was that two, 2015 or 1915? So certainly that was the experience of th- 2015, but she was writing about the same experience 100 years ago and has all kinds of interesting things to say about the experience of having the other come to Europe and the challenges of institutions and its norms and the racism and xenophobia that go along with that. And then the other thing that made it a real little bestseller, certainly in the U.S. context, is the idea of authoritarianism and what conditions on the ground give rise to people welcoming an authoritarian leader. And the conditions turn out to be more existential than most political scientists or politicians want to talk about. So it's a sort of cynicism, it's a questioning of The very existence of truth, the idea that we no longer feel angered if we're lied to because we think, well, everyone's just lying to us anyway, so it doesn't matter. So all of these things mixed together kind of give rise to leaders who can openly lie to their their public, to their people, and still have their support. And the second condition is this feeling of powerlessness and isolation and loneliness. Which play, which really good authoritarian leaders are able to play off of in order to create a kind of mob Mm -hmm. mentality that then allows people to consolidate power in these specific ways. And so there have probably been dozen really interesting articles Mm -hmm. using Iran to try to understand the rise of Donald Trump in the U.S. and the extreme right in the, in other parts of, in various parts of Europe. Um, to explain the conditions on the ground that give rise to this. Because, of course, when it happened, everyone was shocked, like, how, how could this possibly be? No, this this, is, this isn't right. This was a total shock. But, of course, Irez would have seen it. She would have seen these conditions, and she would have warned us that this is what was coming. Um, so, yes, yeah, a really, really interesting book.
0: It certainly was. Um, Irene coined the phrase, the, the banality of evil. Could you describe the circumstances surrounding this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the banality of evil is a phrase that came out of a series of articles she wrote for The New Yorker on the trial of Adolf Eichmann, and it ultimately became published in a book called Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil. And what she said was, when you look at Eichmann, and she was at the trial in Jerusalem, and she you know, read everything that had been written at the time, she had seen all the evidence, and she saw him, and the prosecution was trying to portray him as evil incarnate, hater of the Jews, determined to wipe them off the planet. And when you saw him, she thought, like, no, that's, that's not what he is. He is a middle-level bureaucrat, concerned for his own well-being, his own promotions, his own, you know, house in the suburb and family, and kind of indifferent to whether or not he was killing Jews or if he was, you know, making sure the Boston public transportation system was running effectively. For him, it could have been, if he hadn't been born in a different culture, in a different time, in a different climate, he might have lived the most banal, ordinary life. He wasn't a serial killer. He wasn't vicious. He was banal. And what she meant by that was he refused to think. He refused to think about what he was doing. So... He, his task, Adolf Eichmann's task, was to make sure the trains ran efficiently. And as I always joke with my students, genocide is not easy. It actually is very, very complicated. It takes a lot of really smart people to figure out the logistics. Of killing hundreds of thousands to millions of people in a few short years is, is challenging. And Adolf Eichmann played a really important role. He made sure the trains were filled and ran efficiently to the um, concentration camps, to the death camps in Poland and Germany, including trains that carried children from France and other countries to the death camps. So on the one hand, he dealt with it just as a logistical problem. How do you make sure the trains are filled? How do you get people on board? How do you make sure, how do you schedule them so they don't get delayed, they don't run into any trouble? And that's what he kind of saw himself as doing. He wasn't particularly anti-Semitic. He wasn't particularly vicious. He didn't seem to have, you know, a dog in the show, as we would say. He, he thought of himself as just doing the job that he was hired to do. And she says, but that's no less evil than had he been vicious, savage killer, or vicious anti-Semite, you know, like there were plenty of examples of at the time. But what, his, what he was guilty of was this, what she calls thoughtlessness the refusal to think about what he was doing, the refusal to understand the world, and to be so isolated as to think only about himself. And if that's right, that is terrifying, because what it means is that any one of us is in principle you know, able to commit. If we were in that circumstance and we thought our jobs were on, or you know, our houses will be repossessed unless we keep working for this bureaucracy, many people might engage in those activities, might refuse to think about what we're doing. And there are no shortage of examples, I think, of policies that we engage in and support that have terrible implications for innocent human beings that we don't think about. So she, thought, she argued that the real danger of political society, are not the evil, vicious, savage people. Like, we shouldn't think of them as these horrible monsters. We should think of them as people who refuse to think, who refuse to engage in the world. And that makes evil much, much more banal and much, much more terrifying in a lot of ways. So how, how does genocide happen? You don't need a society of savage killers filled with hate. All you need is people who refuse to think. The, the concept of the banality of evil
0: that really angered, frustrated, and infuriated a lot of people at the time. Yeah, it's quite a scary thought, isn't it, about the banality of evil. Well, thank you very much for coming onto the program today. Oh, my pleasure. I've been speaking to Associate Professor Serena Perrick about Hannah Arendt. Well, that's all we have time for today. Hope you've enjoyed the program and been given plenty of food for thought.